Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 21st, 2018, and this is show number 702. Well, Steve and I are really, really excited because our son Kyle is getting married this Saturday to a wonderful woman named Nikki. We absolutely adore Nikki, and we couldn't be happier about it. Now, you might wonder why you care about that. Well, we got the rehearsal dinner on Friday. We got the wedding on Saturday, the goodbye breakfast on Sunday. So I'm just guessing it's going to be hard for me to have the show ready for you on Sunday night. So I've decided we're going to have a one-day slippage with the live show at 5 p.m. on Monday night instead of Sunday night. I hope you will all survive waiting that extra day to get the Nocilla cast. Well, recently I've been busy with other people's podcasts in the last couple of weeks, and I wanted to tell you all about them. Last week, I was a guest on In Touch with iOS, which is a podcast by Dave Ginsburg and Melissa Davis. Melissa's been dealing with some house issues lately. I could totally sympathize. We've been sharing notes on how annoying it is to have contractors inside your house all day, every day, all the time. But uh, anyway, since she was having those problems, I snuck on with just Dave. We first met Dave at MaxHawk Expo in Chicago a few years ago, and after watching him speak on the main stage there, I asked him, like, why are you not doing a podcast? Evidently, I was not the only one to suggest it to him that weekend. He is absolutely a natural, and he knows so much about iOS. I learn from him every time we get together. So he met up with Melissa and hence began In Touch with iOS. Anyway, I was on episode 37 where we talked about iOS 12 tips, and that was, of course, mostly him teaching me things. And we talked a lot about Apple Watch and fitness. It was great fun, and I hope you go check it out at InTouchWithiOS.com. Now, when we were at MacStock Expo this year, Bob Wood of the Tucson Mac Users Group, also known as TMUG, cornered me and talked me into doing a talk for TMUG. I did it over Skype, and to my surprise, Melissa Davis was there. She even took a, a selfie of us together with her on stage, or her in front of me on stage. It was pretty funny. Anyway, I guess the moral of the story is do not go to MacStock Expo, or you'll get tricked into podcasting and presenting and meeting fun people and making new friends. The other podcast I got to be on this week was with a whole new friend. Darren Carr does a show called The Mac Quadcast. Darren is a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down, and on life support. That does not seem to slow him down one little bit. He's got this really cool format for a show. Right now, he's interviewing Mac luminaries. Dave Hamilton, Dan Morin, and Adam Christensen, among others, have preceded me. Anyway, he had a, has a stock set of questions, but of course, because he has varied guests, it means the show takes completely different turns with each guest. He asks us for our favorite piece of Apple hardware of all time and our favorite iPhone of all time and why. On the software side, he asks us for either our most useful or our biggest time-wasting application or service on the Mac. I claimed I waste no time on my Mac and instead answered with my favorite software. I cheated and listed three instead of one. On iOS, he let us pick our most useful or wasteful apps as well. He also asked if there's any accessibility features we use, and I had three of them. My favorite question he asks is, if you could control Tim Cook via Siri for a day, what hardware project would you initiate increased investment in, or increase investment in, I should say? That can go just about anywhere with different guests. I bet you're thinking right now how you would answer that question. It's really fun. Anyway, I don't want to spoil the whole show, so I'll stop describing it and encourage you to go over to the Mac Quadcast at themacquad.com and go look for episode 12 featuring me. Of course, you can search for the Mac Quadcast in your podcatcher of choice. By the way, he's got even got a uh, giveaway going on 
for the note-taking app Bear in the episode I'm in, so you have even more incentive to listen. Chit Chat Across the Pond this week was Programming by Stealth Installment 65 of X. This time, Bart takes us through bootstrap input groups. These are really cool. Think about a form online that has information you're supposed to be filling in, but you're never sure exactly what they're asking for. Let's say they're asking for you to type in some money. What currency do they mean? Are you supposed to include the numbers after the decimal or not? With bootstrap input groups, you can put in little symbols or words before or after the input field to make it obvious, like a euro symbol and .00 on the end, so you know you're not supposed to type the uh, numbers after the decimal. As with all things bootstrap, it's not something that can't be done in HTML, but it's so much easier to make them pretty and elegant without being a designer. Now, I gotta tell you, Bart and I always have a good time together, you know that, but for some reason, we were particularly gleeful during this episode. Even when I got lost at one point, as I often do, and sometimes I get really frustrated, this time it was fun and interesting and we laughed a lot. Remember, you can start programming by stealth at any time, like John Tiftikjian did, who's, uh, let's see, he's on installment 24 right now. It's evergreen content, so it's just sitting there waiting for you. Check out Programming by Stealth in your podcatching app of choice, and it's also available in the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. And of course, you can always listen at podfeed.com. You know, I'm a fan of the Apple Watch Activity app because it motivates me to burn calories so, you know, I can eat and drink more. We've heard from many others who got much healthier because they had real metrics to work with, unlike ever before. With WatchOS 5, Apple stepped up the game on getting us to be more healthy. They've instituted something they call activity competitions. In the past, sharing activity with friends really hasn't been that interesting, nowhere near as good as the way uh, Fitbit did it, mostly because people's goals are so different, it's really hard to compare and compete. To have an effective competition, I think you really want to compete with someone who is close in goals to you. Like, not taking on Bart, he burns like 1,800 to 2,000 calories a day. That's nuts. Turns out my good friend Pat Dengler has a calorie burn goal very close to mine and yet blows through her goal pretty often. Pat's goal is 680 calories and mine is 660. Really shit up mine by 20 calories. I can't have her doing better than me. Anyway, the new competitions work in an interesting way and the math of it is not at all obvious. By not obvious, I mean I had to create a spreadsheet and work together with Pat to figure out how it works. I sure hope I'm able to explain it to you without you having to look at my spreadsheet, which is of course in the show notes. Apple explains how to start a competition in a knowledge base article I've put in the show notes at support.apple.com. They explain first how to add a friend to sharing and then how to challenge that friend. Basically, you tap on their name in the sharing section of the activity app on either the watch or the phone and then tap compete. The other person then has to accept the challenge. I'd like to start by quoting directly from Apple on how the competition points are calculated and then I'll go through my understanding of what they mean. They say, During the competition, you both earn points by filling your activity rings. You get a point for every percent that you add to your rings each day, and you can earn up to 600 points a day. That's a max of 4,200 points for the week. That sounds simple, right? But how how exactly is that calculated? And more importantly, are there strategies you can employ to win? The most obvious strategy to win a contest is to lower your goal, but both Pat and I are far too honest and we would totally catch each other if one of us tried that kind of sneaky maneuver. So let's assume you're not a cheater either and see if we can figure out another method to increase your chance of winning an activity challenge. To find the competitions on the phone, open the activity app, then tap on sharing and you'll see all of your competitions at the top. 
When you tap into the competitions you want to view, you'll see a whole bunch of fun metrics and graphs. The same thing happens essentially on the watch. Pat and I started a competition on Monday, October 13th. The competition starts the next day, so our competition went from Tuesday through Monday. The activity app on the phone, and again on the watch, will show you the progress of the competition. You get some nice bar graphs uh, showing your points and your partner's points. They have the values on the graph too. Now, let's talk about the numbers. The first day, I got 546 points, and she got 411. The second day, we both did better at 578 and 516. But Thursday and Friday, we both got 600 points. Now, I'm not going to read off all the points, but we both got to wondering, how are those points being calculated? How did I get 546 points and she got 411 on day one? To repeat the quote from Apple, you get a point for every percent that you add to your rings each day, and you can earn up to 600 points a day. All right, let's see if I can explain this. Let's take that first day. I got 546 points. My calorie burn was 919. I stood 16 times and I exercised 82 minutes. How does 919, 16, and 82 end up to be a total of 546 points? Well, it's all about percentage of goal on each ring separately. So let's watch through, walk through each ring and then we'll talk about how to balance these points to increase your chances of winning a challenge. Calorie points are the hardest one to follow, but the one we look at the most, so let me start there. My goal was 660 calories. If I burned exactly 660 calories for the day, that's 100% of goal, I would have gotten 100 points. I burned 919 calories that day, so I have to take 919 divided by by my goal of 660, which is 139%, or 139 points. Okay, that's the hard one. Stand points are easier because the Apple Watch gives everyone the exact same goal. Stand 12 times in every 24-hour day. That's the goal. So if you stand 12 times in a day, that's 12 divided by 12, which is 100% or 100 points. The first day of the competition, I stood 16 times, which is unusually high for me. So I get 16 out of 12 or 133%, which is 133 points for standing. Now, exercise is another one where everyone has the same goal. We all have to do 30 minutes of exercise a day. One more time, if we do 30 minutes, 30 out of 30 would be 100% or 100 points. Starting to see the pattern here, right? Well, I exercised 82 minutes. So 82 divided by 30 is 273% or 273 points. Now to get our grand total points, we add up the calorie points of 139, the stand of 133, and the exercise of 273, which is, ta-da, 546 total points, which is what we were looking for. Now, if anyone's actually counting along, the numbers I just rattle off do add to 545, but without the round off error, it is actually 546, like they said. That's why you need a spreadsheet. Okay, easy peasy, right? But wait, what about that 600 thing? How does that fit in? Well, let's use Pat's stats for Saturday. She burned 1147 of 680 calories. I told you she's a beast. So she got 169 points. She stood 14 of 12 times, which gave her 117. She exercised 111 minutes, which was 370% a goal for another 370 points. If you add all those things up, you get to 655 total points. But they don't let you get any more than 600 points, so she was capped at 600. Now, if you balanced your work between the three types of rings to get all 600 points, you'd have to do double your move goal in active calories. You'd have to stand 24 hours a day double 12, and you'd have to exercise 60 minutes a day. 
Using math, I can show you the best way to get your points because I'm guessing you're not going to be standing up 24 hours a day. I promised at the outset I'd help you win these competitions. When Pat first challenged me, I said it was no fair because she picked the week we had our grandson Forbes with us. I knew it'd be much harder for me to get in a second hard workout in the mornings and uh, or to get my first workout done in the mornings and it'd be nearly impossible to get out of the house for my long walk with Tesla in the afternoon. But it turned out to be the perfect week to be challenged. With me running around after Forbes all day long, I didn't have long stretches of time sitting at my desk writing. Remember we had a short show last week? That's why. I was standing way, way, way more than I usually do. The stand goal of 12 is normally the hardest one for me to achieve. Instead of hitting 12 a day, I had all 15, 16, and 17 stand days. Now let's see why that matters. One stand is worth one twelfth or 8%, which is 8 points. To get 8 points in burned calories, I would have to burn 8% of 660, which is 53 calories. That's about three quarters of a mile walking at a reasonably quick pace for me, say around 20 minutes of time. So I can stand up for two minutes every hour or walk for 20 minutes. Which one seems easier to achieve to you? Now, the exercise points are pretty easy too in comparison. To get eight points of exercise, you only have to exercise 8% of 30 minutes or 2.4 minutes. I mean, eight points, 2.4 minutes, that's a good deal. So walk really fast for a couple of minutes. You get eight points of stand and eight points of exercise. See how easy it is as long as you know the math? Well, as I mentioned, getting double your stand goal isn't achievable, but make sure you stand every single hour you're awake and put your watch on first thing in the morning and take it off last thing at night. So then uh, let's see, next I would concentrate on the exercise minutes to get the next easiest points because 30 minutes, not that long, right? So again, combining exercise with stand credit can really get your points up. Finally, you will have to burn calories to win if your challenger is as strong as Pat. I use the Apple Watch to measure how many calories each type of exercise burns, and then I concentrate on the high-value exercise. So like the elliptical, nowhere near as much as one of my speed walks or one of my runs. Personally, I do recommend having your grandson over to run you up and down the stairs constantly for six days. You can totally win an activity competition on the Apple Watch with that strategy. One of the fun things about Apple's activity app is that you get these little badges. I know they're virtual, but Pat and I love them, and we'll go out of our way to get them. When you complete a competition, you get a badge for it. You don't have to win to get that badge, and you get more of them the more you do. When you win a challenge, you get a different badge. This one has a gold star on it, and you'd be amazed what I'd do to get a gold star. I'm always making Bart give them to me for doing my homework and programming by stealth. Now, the bad news is that Forbes has gone home and Pat has challenged me again this week. The good news is my doctor gave me the green light to start running again now that my broken toe is finally healed. I'm going to have to figure out a way to stand up every single hour I'm awake to get as many easy points as I can. But without Forbes' help, I think I'm going to have to set a repeating reminder for 10 till the hour to stand every day. Since I usually hit my stand goal, the Apple Watch doesn't remind me automatically. It only reminds you when you're bad at it. So it'll make sure you get 12, but it won't tell you about 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You got to get all those points. And I did up my calorie goal to 680 to match Pat's. The only chance I have to beat her this week is that we're still rearranging our house every day as the painters chase us from room to room. Game on, Pat. Last week on the show, I talked about the demise of Google Plus and how I was trolling around for a replacement for people who didn't like Facebook. I came to the reluctant initial realization that perhaps Slack was the answer. Lots of people use Slack and claim to like it, but I was less than enamored with the interface. 
Over the last year, I've been forced to use Slack for Screencasts Online and for Daily Tech News Show, and I've gotten used to the things that used to annoy the heck out of me. I mean, they're still annoying, but I'm used to them. A long time ago, I actually created a Slack workspace for the podcast, but I never told you guys about it or did much with it. Before I recorded the show last week, I dusted off the Podfeet podcast Slack, put on a new logo, fixed up the name, added a few channels, and sprayed around some air freshener. After recording the show, I posted a link to the Slack in the live Discord chat room to see if the live Nocilla Castaways wanted to kick the tires a bit and tell me what they thought. Quite a few people went in and started banging around, so I posted a link to our Slack in our Google Plus community, and even more people came in and gave it a look. I thought it might be helpful if I gave you some basics of using Slack, because it's really taking off. I'm very far from being an expert in the tool, but over the last week between us, uh, we've figured a few things out. First of all, let's talk about the interface. Slack can be accessed via pretty much any platform. There's native apps for the Mac, iOS, Windows, Android. You can also get in via the web. The desktop app looks pretty similar to the web interface, so moving back and forth between those two is not problematic. However, switching between desktop and mobile is tricky. I found at least two features that uh, must be accessed in the opposite way between them. We'll get more into that in a bit. The hardest thing to wrap your brain around is the concept of having multiple Slack workspaces. In my case, I have one for the Podfeet podcast, one for Screencast Online, and two for Daily Tech News Show. Tom Merritt has one for the people who are guests on DTNS Show and another one that's for his patrons, so I'm actually in two of them. Now, when you're in multiple Slack workspaces, you'll see those icons down the left sidebar, if you're on the desktop, hidden to the left if you're on mobile. When you're in a given workspace, you'll see another sidebar. You'll see new threads at the top, if there are any new threads that you haven't read, or it'll say all threads if there's nothing new. We'll talk about threads in a minute. Next up are the channels, and that's going to be a whole discussion unto itself. Basically, channels are different areas for discussion. You can have as many or as few channels as you like. Next in the left sidebar are direct messages. I hate to admit it, but I really like having a DM capability inside of a community conversation area. Finally, you can add apps to Slack workspaces. I think this is what makes Slack really powerful, is its extensibility. I haven't done much, but I did add the polling app Poll Everywhere. You know, I love me a good poll. Each Slack workspace has its own Slack URL. For example, podfeet.slack.com and dtns.slack.com. But you can't join using those URLs. You have to have an invite URL in order to join, or an admin has to send you an invite directly. Now, those URLs are important. Once you have been in one, and let's say you get a new device, you need to know what that URL, that podfeet.slack.com, you need to know that in order to find it again, which is a little weird and annoying. Anyway, in the list of weird interface issues with Slack, I've got another one. When I first created an invite to the Slack, the invite said it expired in 24 days. I couldn't see a way to change that. I was thinking, man, this is going to be a real pain to have to update that darn link every few weeks. I did a search online for how to create a permanent link. While the instructions clearly said I could make a non-expiring link, following along took me to the expiring link option. Then I noticed in very small print that I could edit the options, but I could only edit what I'd done if I deleted the original link I'd created. Okay, so I deleted it, asked for it again, and now I had an expiration dropdown that showed 30 days, but I could select longer terms up to and including never for the expiration. Armed with that non-expiring link, I was able to edit the double secret hidden .htaccess file at the root of podfeed.com, and that allows me to add a redirect to that long, drawn-out Slack URL. 
What all that means to you is that you can now go to podfeet.com slash Slack to join the new Slack channel for the Podfeet podcast. No permissions required. When you go in there, it's going to ask you for your full name. You can make up anything you like if you'd like to be anonymous. I'm looking at you, George and Dorothy. But, you know, names are nice too. You also get to pick a handle, which is fun. If you get in early enough, you can even have your first choice of names since they're unique within our workspace. You need to give it an email address, which they'll ask you to use to verify. George from Tulsa and I talked about the security policy of Slack, and it turns out they encrypt your data in transit and at rest on their servers. They do, however, have the encryption keys. They say Slack will only disclose customer data in response to valid and binding compulsory legal process. This is also true of iCloud services, so it's not unusual. I put a link in the show notes to the Slack security practices page so you can do some more reading up on it if you like. Now let's take a look at channels. Channels are specific topic areas. In a business environment, you can see where you might have a big team of people working on sub-projects, and everyone doesn't want to have to dig through all of the chatter to get just to what they want to know. In the Podfeet podcast environment, though, I'm going to try to keep the number of channels to a minimum. I regretted how many different topic areas there were in our Google Plus community. You don't want to have it where people can't figure out where they're supposed to post. So far, I have created four channels, General, NCS Show Off, I wanted to call that Nocilla Castaway Show Off, but I'm not allowed to have that many characters in the name, so hopefully you know that NCS means uh, not uh, like NCIS, but uh, Nocilla Castaway Show Off, and then Show Announcements, and then I made one called Delete Me. These names are uh, cryptic, like I said, because of the short limit on how long the names can be. The Delete Me one is there for a very good reason, because in our list of weird and annoying things about Slack is that channels are very hard to discover. You can be invited to do a channel, and some can be private, invite-only channels, or you can attempt to find the public channels on your own. On the Mac and on iOS, you'll see the word channels followed by a plus in a circle. On iOS, if you tap on the word channels, nothing at all will happen. But if you tap on the plus, you'll be shown a list of all the available public channels. If you have the privileges to do so, there will also be a create button to create new channels. Now, on the Mac, you have to do the exact opposite method to get into a channel. If you tap on the plus sign, you can only create channels, given the privileges. You cannot see the available channels. The only way to view the channels available to you is to tap on the word channels instead. How dumb is that? I mean, why couldn't they just make it the same on both? Well, in the Podfeet Slack, I created a channel called Delete Me, just as a test to see if people could find it. The funny thing is that a lot of the discussion about the Slack interface is taking place in that throwaway channel. You gotta love the new Silicastaways. Well, as the owner and admin, I can set the default channels that people see when they first join, so you get three real ones. But if you joined after I added those, you'd have to find the channels using these instructions. I think it might be a good test to see if you can find the Delete Me channel and join a bunch of people who are messing around in there. Oh, Rob Raid and, and Alistair Jenks and Jamie Cox were in there day one. So a lot of people are having fun just trying to find the channels. By default, all members have a lot of power. When I told the No Silicastaways in the live chat audience about Slack, I mentioned that anyone can make a channel and that I would leave it open like that until our youngest No Silicastaway, Toby, started going crazy. Within about two minutes of me telling them how to get in, Toby had created three very silly channels. So now you guys can't make your own channels. But like I said, it was it was good that I did it that way because uh, Toby forced me to figure out how do I stop people from being able to mess with the channels. 
Now, let me, uh, by the way, if there's one you really want and it makes sense, I'll add it. But like I said, I think fewer is better. Since I uh, wrote up the show notes, I have added one for programming by stealth because I thought that's something that's a fairly narrow topic that people might want to go in and have conversations about the homework or where they're stuck or what they learned or something cool they know about the class. Anyway, it it seemed like a, a very separate kind of a topic area. Now, Jamie Cox started really poking at the channels thing, and he discovered that channels can have a topic and that anyone can change it. Now, a channel already has a purpose that is written, and uh, that's written by the person who created it. So you would say, like, delete me. The purpose was I made this, so I wanted to see if you could find it, but it's a junk channel. A topic is more ephemeral. Let's say there's a live Google announcement. Someone could change the topic to that while we're watching. For now, I'll leave the topic unleashed, so feel free to have some fun with it. But if it gets annoying, I'll lock that down too. Now, one of the reasons I didn't go with Discord as our community is because it doesn't support threaded messaging. It's designed for real-time chat, not for keeping up with each other for tech problems or discussing a new product announcement in a thoughtful way. Slack has threaded discussions. Just like with channels, the way you initiate them is completely different on the Mac and iOS. With iOS, if someone says something interesting, you just kind of smash your finger down on the text of what they said, and that starts a new thread. A new thread is not started until someone replies to a post, but it seems like a natural way to respond. But with the desktop app and the web interface, it's not at all intuitive, and I would go as far as to say it's hidden how to create a thread. Let's say that George from Tulsa puts in a comment that says, Greetings, Earthling, and includes a photograph of a carnival ride with dragons with thought bubbles on them. You know, not that he would ever do that. I'm just, you know, just making up this example. If George's post was the most recent thing on the page, it would be natural to just start typing in the message text area at the bottom. But that is not a thread. That's an entirely new post. The trick is to hover your mouth, your, not your mouth, hover your mouse over George's post, and you'll be rewarded with some handy little icons above and to the left, one of which is a thought bubble. If you tap the thought bubble, you can now start a new thread by replying to George's comment. You can also add a little emoji with a button from the hover over a message menus. You can share the message to a new channel or new people, and you can star a message. I think starred messages are just for you so you can keep the things you want to remember or to which you want to refer later in a little list. In the far upper right of the Slack window is a star, which if selected will reveal all of your starred messages in a side panel on the right. Now, I wish I knew why they did it one way on the Mac and another way on iOS. I know you can't hover on iOS, but you could make it where you don't have to hover on the Mac either. I have a feeling that this will be one of my pet peeves where I'm constantly nagging people to use message threads. Like, well, actually, you didn't do a thread. You need to do it this way. So hopefully we can all share the load and keep reminding people, telling people how to make threads because it's really helpful to use threads. But, you know, I'm going to sound like the only nag. So if you could help nag, that would be great. Now, tagging people in Twitter, Google+, and even Facebook is a great way to catch someone's attention. Slack supports tagging people by using the at symbol followed by their Slack handle. You could set your notifications to only let you know if someone asks you so the chatter doesn't overwhelm you. Sandy Foster learned that the hard way on the first day we stood up the Slack. She kind of had to turn a lot of stuff off because it was going crazy. Sometimes you might need to catch everyone's attention and Slack actually has the ability to do that. You simply at everyone. I'm not sure that's something I can restrict to owners and admins, but again, I will leave that open unless it gets abused. I really like that Slack has direct messaging built into it. 
It's as simple as hitting the plus button and doing a search for the person with whom you want to chat privately. Once you've chatted with someone, their name lives in a list under where it says direct messages. I mentioned that you can set notifications for your Slack workspaces. In the upper left where you see Podfeet Podcasts, there's a little bell. If you select that, you can snooze notifications for a period of time and even set a do not disturb schedule, like I should have done while I'm in the middle of this podcast, but my watch is going off like crazy because people are talking in Slack. I forgot. Anyway, you can set notification preferences on a channel by channel basis. So let's say you really like to get notified when things are hopping in the general channel, but you don't want to get an alert every time I post a blog post or a podcast episode in the show announcements channel. You can set the channels independently to notify you of all new messages, only those in which you're mentioned, or any one of the keywords you're following gets mentioned. They do keywords. That's really cool too. Or you can have no notifications at all on a specific channel. You can even set these three levels of granularity separately for desktop and mobile, and you can even mute an entire channel if you like. But maybe you don't want to fiddle with settings on every single channel and every single Slack workspace you're in. You can change your default notifications in your account preferences. I really like services where people get to control what kind of information they want to receive. Maybe I like to hear the chatter all day long, but you prefer to just dip your toe in from time to time and calmly consume the content on your schedule. It's great that Slack allows us to both have it the way we like it. The bottom line is that while Slack has some very weird interface inconsistencies, after learning how well you can control notifications to get just the information you want, I'm actually becoming a bit fond of Slack. I've had a few people say, hey, you know, I'm in Facebook, but I really want to leave Facebook, so it'd be fun to be over here. So um, that's, that's kind of cool. I was worried this might bifurcate the Facebook community, but it's uh, even more. But it's actually, maybe it's going to be the great unifying application that we've been looking for. So if you head on over to podfeet.com slash Slack, you can join the conversation. I'm not going to be plugging the Google Plus community anymore after this. Now, what do you guys think? Tell me what you think over in our Slack group. Well, speaking of Slack, Russ Sherman sent in an audio dumb question to us. This one is interesting because there isn't a definitive answer to his question. It's a matter of opinion. And he doesn't just want my opinion. He wants your opinion, too. Let's have a listen to Rush's question. Hi, Allison. It's Rush, and I've got a dumb question. What makes a good activity goal? This question is a broad one, but intentionally so, because what I'd like to hear are your thoughts, as well as maybe those of Steve or Bart or any of the Nozilla castaways that have thoughts on how do you set a good activity goal? It came about when I was thinking about buying the Series 4 watch, and one of my favorite apps on the iPhone is the Activities Plus Plus app which you've reviewed, I think, on your blog as well as on Screencast Online. That app alone has helped me with uh, the Workouts Plus Plus app to no longer need my fancy Garmin Forerunner watch, which I've used in the past. Instead, I'm able to use that and monitor streaks of closing my rings. However, I'm currently at a 40-day streak, and I'm asking myself, if it were a 1,000 days, would that really be a good goal? At what point does a goal and hitting it for so long really sort of indicate that maybe your goal is too easy? I know it's a balance of time and other things, and it can probably change over time. So thanks for considering my dumb question. Well, thank you, Rush. This was fantastic. What a great question. 
I would love it if everyone with an opinion on what they think is the best way to figure out a good activity goal is for Apple Watch and iPhone. I would love it if you guys participate and send in your opinion. If you have an opinion, you could do it a bunch of different ways. You could email me your answer at allisonatpodfeet.com. You could put it in our Facebook group or better yet, put it in our Slack over at podfeet.com slash Slack. I didn't talk about any hardware products this week, but if I had, I would have told you how you can buy them at Amazon. Maybe you know this already. I might have mentioned it in passing, but if you buy Amazon products from the links I provide in the show notes, a small percentage of what you spend will go to help the show. It's about as painless of a way of supporting the show as you could possibly hope. So the next time I mention my Heil PR40 microphone or my Logitech C920 webcam or my Samsung T5 external SSD, know that buying through those links keeps the no-sellicast and all of the fine shows at the PodFeed podcast ad-free. Thank you so much to all of those of you who do it already in advance to those who are about to start. And remember, if you're from other countries, we have links for you too. Check those out at podfeet.com slash Amazon or podfeet.com slash fun with flags. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for uh, Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. Uh, I got to tell you, Bart, looking at your headlines, kind of looks like the same as last time. I thought maybe you gave me the wrong notes. We got some it, Facebook. We got some uh, some uh, hacks here. We got some Bloomberg. A bit of deja vu, all right. Yeah, that is that is a fair way to look at it. Um, but there's some new news as well. It, it's it's been a busy it's been a busy two weeks in the security world. Um, no no danger of of having a lack of things to talk about. All right, good. Well, we should tuck in then. Yeah, so the first thing is just to say there's been some more, there hasn't really been that much more big news about the Facebook hack, but there have been some nice articles that crossed my newsreader just after we recorded last time. Remind me, which Facebook hack was this? (laughs) The October 2018 security breach is how it's being described. Was that the one with the tokens? Yes, that's exactly the one with the token. So um, actually, one thing of note that we have learned last time, we we thought that it might be possible that the tokens could be used for third party sites. So if you do a login with Facebook, there's now been some more clarity on that. And thankfully, the answer is no, it could not have been used for anything you log into Facebook with. So that narrows it down a bit, which is nice. Good, 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 good. Another subtlety, though. Because a token is created after you've proved who you are, this is one of the rare cases where there's a a vulnerability related to authentication where two-factor authentication is useless as a defense. Oh, because the token already knows, already says, yep, I've been verified. Exactly. So the token is created at the point when Facebook servers are happy you have jumped through all of the hoops that your account is configured to make you jump through, whether that be one, just a password or whether that be two factor auth. Not until all hoops have been cleared is the token generated. And the problem here is it's leaking tokens, not failing to do validation. Okay. So it's, I mean, yeah, two factor yeah. auth is great and it protects from a lot, a lot of things and you should enable it on Facebook anyway. But this is one of those cases where just like a seatbelt won't save you from an anvil falling on your head. <laughs> 2FA isn't, you know, it isn't a unicorn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a great analogy. I like it. I'm, I'm very, I always use seatbelts for analogy, but I never know what's going to come out of my mouth next. It's an interesting uh, Rorschach test of what's in Bart's head. I watch cartoons quite clearly. <laughs> I see the little birds going around my head. Okay, good. Tweet, tweet, tweet. 
Um, so yeah, there's two links in the show notes anyway, two nice write-ups that sort of summarise the thing. One from iMore, who are usually very good on this kind of technical stuff, and another one from Naked Security, who again have a great talent for getting at the core of complex technical topics. So they're in the show notes. The other story that kept evolving after we talked about it was, of course, The Big Hack, uh, which is the headline Bloomberg gave it. So that's not us making up a name for it. That's that's Bloomberg's name for it. So this is the one about the mini little chips the size of a grain of rice implanted on a motherboard. Uh, or supposedly, allegedly. Um, interesting, actually. Um, oh, sugar, I just forgot to paste a new story into the show notes. Remind me later that we need to say that Apple are, uh, Apple have now asked for a retraction. That's what happened about oh, they have. Ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was seeing earlier that, oh, they haven't asked for a retraction. How come? Yeah, well, the, uh, Tim Cook just did. Tim Cook okay, just good. demanded a retraction. So that is, uh, I'll find the link and pop it in the show notes. That happened literally just as I was about to hit record. Um, another thing that someone pointed out that I hadn't realized last time, you know, that really, if you excuse the phrase, sexy picture of the teeny tiny little chip next to the pencil. Yeah. That might lead you to believe that someone had actually found one of these alleged chips and that that was a picture of what was really happening. No, that's a guess at what it might look like. They haven't found one. Right. We talked about that last time because the, um, the only named source in the article has said that that's his picture, and it was a picture he used in a talk that he was doing at uh, like Black Hat or DefCon when he was yeah. interviewed by the the people who wrote this story. Yeah, and the thing is, actually, it's good you mentioned him because I wanted to talk about him. So he has been interviewed on a podcast since, and he was like, "I gave them, I spoke to them. I am the names. You know, they really did talk to me. I really did speak to the reporters." They asked me hypotheticals, I answered hypotheticals, and then they wrote that exactly what my hypothetical was is what actually happened. Either I'm a genius, or there's something <laughs> screwy going on here. Yeah, that that is the only evidence that, that clearly puts the thumb on the scale in one direction, right? Well, it's the, there's a lot more, a lot more people have nailed a lot more colors a lot more tightly to masts, and... Either there are going to be a lot of people with the entire chicken on their face, or Bloomberg are wrong. Yeah, so, what happens to Bloomberg if they've screwed this up? They look pretty darn bad, because they... The thing is, this wasn't written by their technical people. This was written by their Washington Bureau. Oh, and, really? Yeah. So oh. I, my theory all along has been that well-meaning reporters have not understood what sources have told them fully or that their sources honestly believe something that isn't true and they didn't have the technical chops to realize that this may need deeper digging. I I basically think no one here is malicious. Wouldn't you have the actual evidence? I mean, wouldn't you have the chip like you were saying? Well, see, that's the thing. And the longer it goes by, apparently this is in 30 company servers and these things are all over the place and yet no one has found a single one. And every day that goes by that no one has found the chip... It starts to make the whole premise of the story feel... I mean, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But there does come a point where the preponderance of the evidence points towards the fact that either your guess at the frequency is wrong, or we are the most unlucky beings in existence (laughs) on planet Earth. Because, you know, just like probabilistically all the oxygen can go into one corner of the room and you can die, it's not very likely. And if there's loads and loads of these things around... Where are they? You know, to, to quote Fermi's paradox, where is everybody? 
Uh, Leo was talking about it on MacBreak Weekly, and he had one of these devices, but it was upgraded to uh, one that would work with Amazon S3, and they took back the one that would have had this vulnerability if it did exist, so he couldn't check for it. But Alex Lindsay says he has one, and he's going to give it to the iFixit people and uh-huh. see if there's anything in it. That was what they said as of a couple of weeks ago. I haven't, they didn't say anything on uh, this week's show that I've heard so far. Yeah, some other stuff that I that I sort of that I've been hearing, which is kind of sensible, right? So, Apple are saying like, no, no, we actually scan our network to look for outgoing traffic because whether this is done in hardware or in software, it doesn't matter. What matters is is there's data being exfiltrated. We want to know about it. So. It's not like if these chips did exist that they would be guaranteed to actually even be able to phone home because, you know, how the phoning is happening is secondary to the fact that the perimeter is being very closely watched. And then I heard John Gruber say that he had a source inside Apple saying that they actually photograph the motherboards of servers that arrive and compare them to known good photographs to make sure that there is nothing different. Oh, okay. So, like, this is basically... See, the, the annoying thing about this story is if they hadn't hung the Apple and Amazon bell on it to try and make it uber sexy, to use that word yeah, again, right? there's actually a real core here. This is a clear and present danger that we all need to be aware of. And that's rather got lost by the fact that I think they reached too far. Yeah, so now nobody's going to believe it when it does happen. Yeah, or no one's going to take it seriously, the fact that this is exactly the kind of thing that large corporations and governments need to be defending against, because this is extremely plausible as an attack, which is why the guy, the one named source, was able to tell them, hypothetically speaking, this is how it would go. Right, this right. Is, this is really possible, and it's also a real danger, but that's been completely lost because they tried to they reach too far. They tried to hang Apple on it, because that will get you more clicks. And it's it's very worrying, actually, that the, the actual security news has been completely lost here because Bloomberg wanted a bigger story than they had. It's most annoying. But anyway, speaking of people nailing colours of the mast, Apple wrote a letter to the Congress of the United States of America basically saying this is simply wrong. Uh, the full letter is linked in the show notes. They don't leave themselves wiggle room. Um, BuzzFeed are quoting their sources within Apple saying that everyone in Apple is scratching their heads going, I have no idea what these people are talking about. We didn't report anything to the FBI. None of this matches any of our memories of what happened. No, that's um, a little bit odd that it's said that way because the the initial letter from Apple said Bloomberg did come to us. We did investigate and we did not find him and we anything and we told them that. So right, saying we don't Bloomberg, know where this came from, that, that doesn't sound... That's okay, I'm paraphrasing. Sorry, I'm obviously okay. paraphrasing badly. My apologies. It's um, okay. So Bloomberg is saying that there was a report to the FBI, and Apple is saying no. Okay, right, right. What are they talking about? This this isn't what happened at all. They're, yeah. Um. There's also a statement from the Department of Homeland Security press secretary, and they basically are saying the same thing as the UK. Um, last time we had just got a, report, uh, a statement from the UK's equivalent of the NSA saying, we believe the companies. And the right. same is now from the Department of Homeland Security in the United States. Um, Good. Then so they've Bloomberg- apparently investigated in some fashion or... Yeah, they're basically saying, we don't have any record of these supposed investigations that we're supposedly doing. We have absolutely no evidence that this ever happened. So, basically, everyone's going, I, what investigation? We're not investigating. What are you talking about? Wow. So yeah. 
I, I don't yeah. see how Bloomberg can be right. You play a game with Chinese whispers where you have sea level people who are high up in the intelligence industry who aren't technical, who have half heard a story, who then tell it to a Bloomberg reporter who's not technical, who half hears a story. It doesn't take long for like a game yeah. of Chinese whispers to tell you pretty quick how things break down. But supposedly they've been working on it for a year and, and they're Bloomberg. You know, I mean, they, they have checks yeah. and balances in there, right? They have editors and people who oversee articles. And I mean, it's not the National Enquirer, for crying out loud. I know. It, it's, <laughs> it's there's going to be a serious amount of egg on face. But I, I still see how I can see a world where people high up in the intelligence community say something which isn't you know, which is secondhand technical information, so they're not quite using the right words to someone who's not technical, who doesn't, who who knows the story they want to write and hears what they want to hear, and how you can innocently get to a stage where you're writing stuff that's half true, or you know, I, I mean, the kernel here is this is a danger. The problem is they went further than saying this is a danger to this has happened, and that that doesn't seem to be bearing out. Yeah, odd. It's it's, it's not good. Um, there's also then Bloomberg actually doubled down and say that more servers have Chinese spy hacks in it, so they're really not backing down on this. Oh, story, really? Not, oh, wow. Yet. Yeah, and then I have links to um, an opinion piece, basically supply chain security 101 and experts view, which is on, on Brian Krebs's Krebs on security. And again, this is kind of that's actually what we should be talking about. And if this story had been well-written, this would be what we're all talking about, is actually, no, security, uh, supply chain security is something we need to care about. It is a difficult problem to solve. It is something the whole security community needs to spend time and energy focusing on and trying to find good solutions to, because as long as we make stuff in foreign countries, this is a real danger. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up in this context, because I'm sure... First of all, I'm I'm sure that Apple's going to come out. Apple and Amazon will be right. I'm positive. I have no doubt. Uh, not based yeah, on anything, sure but too, what I've heard. Um, and I'm also positive that I would have said, "See, this kind of thing doesn't happen <laughs> afterwards." Which maybe technically at this instant in time, that's true. But it looks like this didn't happen to those two companies. This may have happened to other companies. Right. Right. You know, it, it's and it may happen tomorrow. Okay. To anyone, you know, I mean, it, it is a clear and present danger, like I say. So that's what I'm hoping people focus on from this. Okay. And then a final piece of follow-up. We've talked a few times about micro-tick routers having nasty vulnerabilities. Um, and the, the annoying thing is that the, there are patches for these vulnerabilities, but micro-tick routers don't have auto-updating features. So the patches exist in theory, but not in practice a lot of the time. Um, and there was a lot of news going around where a Russian vigilante is going around hacking into people's routers using the vulnerability and then installing firewall rules to stop other people hacking into the routers and then logging off. No, I, I, I give this to you as a, as a uh, palate cleanser, but you seem to say, no, it's not a palate cleanser at all. That's horrible. This is a lynch mob. This is... This is people thinking they're above the law, going around hacking into people's stuff, altering the running configs on the routers. I'm well, sure that, he means how do you well. get how do you get mob out of a guy, vigilante? Sure, but he's it, a he's a a uh, Robin Hood. 
Well, he's not robbing from the rich to give to the poor. He's he's a he, he's a guy with a proverbial gun going around being law enforcement without any of the credentials or anyone's permission. I mean, it randomly yeah. installing firewall rules that that block all remote admin. You could end up stopping someone from being able to administer something really critically important because you just decided to log onto their server oh, and erect a I'm firewall. I'm not endorsing his activity. But I still think it is an interesting thing in the human condition that this guy thought, well, I'll solve it myself and I'll just go out here and do this. I don't know. I think a younger me probably would have agreed, but a more... I can imagine me in college thinking this guy was a hero. Okay. All but right. me today doesn't have that same opinion anymore. I don't know. We're going to start up the uh, uh, Edward Snowden discussion again if you're not careful. Because he's right. a hero, what right? What did is different. He's, I don't know. He's a single guy vigilante who took matters in his own hands and broke the law for the greater whistleblowing good. And, whistleblowing and hacking millions of devices is not the same thing, though. The, correct. The end you condition know, I mean, and, and the results are completely different. Yeah, So and the stakes are different, too. Yeah, yeah. But he was a vigilante breaking the law to help people. But he wasn't, in, I would say whistleblower is a more accurate description, uh, but we're quibbling over details not, now. Whistleblowing is not the same thing as stealing government documents. Well, I, well, it depends I on the country you're in, the because in, it, it, there are countries that have laws that explicitly make whistleblowing something that you can legally do as a legal defense. So if this would have happened in, uh, Ireland has a whistleblower's charter, so in Ireland it would be officially whistleblowing and he would be an official whistleblower and he could go to court and say, I was whistleblowing and the judge would have to evaluate his claim based on criteria specified in law and then he would either be a traitor or a whistleblower and the court would decide. Yeah, but he didn't but do it in Ireland. He did and not I, do it in I Ireland. know what the security clearance forms say that he signed. I Yes, them. yes. So, well, so is uh, all the planet because they're all hacked. Yeah. So, just saying. Just to cheer you up. One's a, one's a hero and one's a, a horrible person. Well, just... I said well-meaning. I just... I don't want to endorse that kind of thing. I don't want to encourage... Oh, no. It's not that I think no, he's a I'm, bad person. I just don't want to... I don't want to go around encouraging people to copy. Is, is yes. I'm not saying... Yeah, I'm not saying he's he's bad. I'm saying he... It, it, it's misguided and please don't copy. Okay. Um, so we have two security mediums. Um, <clears throat> the first one you've already sort of partially talked about because it affects the Nocilla Castaway community because, you know, the community started on Google Plus and then, how you know, became Facebook or Google Plus as you wish. And it will soon be not Google Plus anymore because Google wishes that not to be so. Yep. And so you already talked about the what, uh, I guess, from this. Let's just review real quickly. They're shutting down Google+, Plus, but I think it's not until August of next year, but we've we've already left. Hmm. And by this time in the show, people will know that we've got a uh, Slack uh, community built up and people are flying into it as we speak. I, I was, I'd been meaning to to actually write you an email because you, you sort of made me chuckle a little bit when you were saying that you want a Slack that's open. And I'm like, well, actually, Slack's selling point is that it's a closed private social network. But I was able to create podfeet.com slash Slack. And you right, can click that link and anybody can get into it. 
Okay, so open. you really have sort of pushed them. You know, a public-private space is, is an interesting concept. I mean, their their whole big thing is they're they're about creating a private social network. That that that's what they're all yeah. about. Yeah, which I like. So it's it's sort of private unless you know the secret code to get in. And I told everybody the secret code, so it's a private one where the code is is published. <laughs> Cool. No, I say I was just chuckling to myself that what you wanted from Slack was exactly what Slack said they were not about giving. But anyway, you got there in the end, so it's all good. Yeah, and yeah. it is kind of for the, for the kind of people who don't want to be in a Facebook community. I can't think of a better, of a more 180 degrees diametrically opposed social network to Facebook than Slack. No, oh, good, good. Because their business model is, you know, a freemium service. So it's about selling a product, not about selling ads. Mm-hmm. And they're about giving you a private space instead of about trying to ho- suck information out of you as as their business model. So they really are an inverse in terms of how their incentives are laid down. And like I say, companies are neither moral nor immoral. They're amoral. They follow their incentives. And exactly. Slack's incentives are very, very different to Facebook's incentives. So it's a, it's a real choice than a Silicast always have. Like they're very, very different companies that they now get to choose between. Yeah, my my first thought was uh, maybe I shouldn't tell the Facebook side because then that'll bifurcate the Facebook people. But then I thought maybe it won't bifurcate. Maybe it'll unify, and every everybody says, "Okay, we're over Facebook. Let's go. Let's all go over to Slack." I, I, I wonder what will happen. We we shall see how the Nasilla Castaways vote with their keyboards. Yeah, it it is another place to go, and that's that's a barrier to act. You might go over and join it right now, but whether you'll go over and check on it all the time, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And it, I guess it depends on how people configure the notifications, whether they end up going once and never going back. It, it will be very interesting to see because it is, it's very different. On the other hand, it's no more non-Facebook than Google Plus was. So if people can check their Google Plus. Yeah, but if see. people were in Gmail, it was right there. So they sort of had that. But um, I, I will True. have also already talked about this, but just for your edification right now, you mentioned notifications. You can go bananas configuring your uh, your notifications. You can have notifications different by channel within a Slack. Yeah. So you can say, okay, I want to see uh, all of the the show announcement stuff, but I don't want to. I don't want a notification of anything in the general uh, section unless somebody uses my name, you know, yeah. or or only unless someone says this one keyboard or this keyword hack. You know, it, it's really really granular. Yeah, I mean, and you can also it's, do it overall if you'd rather just say, no, I don't want anything or I want everything. You know, you can make more global yeah. changes too. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's the problem it's trying to solve. It's trying to be a social network for a corporation. So you could imagine that there will be a channel, say, for the student record system upgrade and a channel for the new finance system and a channel for how to recruit new first years next year. And, you know, I mean, and so yeah. you actually really genuinely would have very good reasons to have very different notification settings on your different channels. And some channels you may want to completely ignore and some channels are going to be really, really important to you if you're in that sort of corporate world. Yeah. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's, I, I like Slack. Okay, so all of that Microsoft side teams, is the, like they're discontinuing it, but you were going to tell us more about the, the, the hack that they sort of swept into the same announcement? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm guessing they were waiting on an opportunity to kill, to sort of go public with the kill. I mean, they can't have just decided at the moment that the news story broke in the Wall Street Journal. They immediately decided within like hours that they were going to kill Google+. Plus. I mean, they must have had that decision made and just not figured out when to tell people and then figured actually now. So what happened is the Wall Street Journal reported that back in March, 
Google became aware of a bug in one of Google Plus's APIs, specifically their People API, um, and they patched it. So they became aware of it, they patched it, and then they had a big internal discussion where they were kind of trying to decide, do we tell people or do we not tell people? Uh, hmm. And of course, if you think back to what was going on in March of this year, we're smack dab in the middle of Cambridge Analytica and all that shenanigans. So you can imagine why people in Google would be very worried about disclosing any sort of breach whatsoever. It's, you know, no one is shooting at us. Let's keep our head below the parapet. Is I'd be thinking the same thing if I was in the executive suite. Um, yeah. yeah. So again, incentives. But but yeah, it's it'd be curious. Would you be worse off uh, doing it being found out separately, or if you'd just gone? Oh, and there was this little tiny breach over at Google. See, my thinking. I right. This is very easy for me to say because I'm not an executive at Google, and the future of my company doesn't depend on my decisions. So this is extremely easy for me to say. But I would like to think that the conclusion I would come to is the way we beat this is that we're extremely open about it, and we show that our our character our what's the word our ethos is completely different to facebook's this is how you do it right see mark zuckerberg you can do it like this would be my approach but <laughs> and they didn't pick that no they did not they decided <laughs> actually we'll just keep stum. I, I so anyway I like to put it in context think about uh your brother getting in trouble with your mom and you actually did something bad on the same day would you try to get cover by just mentioning it on the same day or would you confess later or would you hope she never caught on <laughs> that's, that's what's actually really a difficult decision because if you get all the getting if she you know there's only so much anger to go around so if you if you do it on a day when someone else is already being angered at then you only get half as much right yeah and you help your brother out yeah, which might come back to yeah. So it's anyway, the same yes. thing. All of a sudden, it makes sense how do uh, how the dilemma works, doesn't it? When it's your mom, it it does, and it brings back my childhood oh so much. <laughs> I thought it might. Anyway, I just want to read two two quintessential quotes from the uh, Wall Street Journal. A software glitch in the social site gave outside developers potential access to private Google Plus profile data between 2015 and March 2018, when internal investigators discovered and fixed the issue, according to documents people briefed on the incident. And Hmm. the other money quote, Chief Executive Sundar Pichai was briefed on the plan not to notify users after an internal committee had reached that decision, the people said. So, it's a, so Google's bad. logic. So Google. Okay. So Google's real reason is probably Cambridge Analytica, but the official stated reason they came up with after this report came out retroactively that they retrofitted is well, we only keep logs for two weeks, so we don't know who was affected, if anyone, and there was no one affected in the two weeks of logs we could see. So we figured, since we couldn't tell only the people affected, we should tell no one. I'm thinking if you don't know who is affected, then shouldn't you tell everyone? Isn't that how it, isn't that how it should work? Maybe. Fail open, don't fail closed, you know, like a fire door. <laughs> so yeah, anyway. So the people API is what's at issue and the data in question. So this is Again, this would have been much less of a story had they been upfront about it, because actually the data breached is, it is a danger for a phishing point of view, but that's pretty much the worst danger it gives out, really. You know, targeted phishing becomes a little bit easier with this information, but it's not, it's not credit card data. It's not usernames and passwords. It's not even private messages. What was 
potentially made available. So basically, on Google+, Plus, you can choose to make things private or public. So you, you can enter in your occupation and make it private so that only people in your circle can see that you are an accountant with whoever. Or you can make some things completely public that anyone can see. And in theory, the API should respect your privacy settings because whether you use the web page or whether you use an API, the data you see should be the same. The problem is there was a bug in the API and the API would let you see things that your public profile wouldn't let you see because actually you had said to keep them private, but the API was letting them out anyway. So um, a, a couple things here. Um, number one, the banging noise is the construction workers working at my house. Actually, they're destroying a piece of furniture for us right now, so I can't do anything about that. The second thing is, in thinking about this, back to the analogy with your brother, um, mm-hmm. your mother had weapons to um, uh, make your life terrible after this bad thing that you did, right? Grounding, right. whatever, you know. Yeah. yeah. What, what's going to happen to Google because of this? Nothing at all. Right, some bad publicity was all this was ever going to. Yeah. Well, ar- arguably, maybe the well, ar- at the time there was a fear that that, that Congress might actually do something. Yeah, it seems to have sure they will. Yep, that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean there was a fear. It may not have been you know they may not have been all that you know it's like yeah it's a risk ten percent but a risk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean I I I've been thinking about oh this is terrible. Oh, yeah, okay. What's the next breach? Right. Yeah. And just to say, just to sort of round this one off, um, the data in question is name, email, occupation, gender, and age, which again, very useful for spear phishing, not that much danger beyond that fact. And arguably it might get you into into some sort of issue in some other way, but really the biggest danger is spear phishing. Um, so it's not actually that catastrophic a breach. The cover-up is much worse. It makes, it, it makes Google look bad. Yeah, really bad. So um, this happened before GDPR, right? What would have happened yes. if it had happened after GDPR, if they had let this go and not told anybody? They would have breached GDPR plain as, plain as day. So I, I kept hearing people like Leo Laporte say things like, yeah, but since no one actually accessed the data, it wasn't a breach. It's like, that may be true in your head, Leo, and many, many others. Uh, But the GDPR is very clear on this. A data breach is an exposure of information. Whether someone actually... If you left the door unlocked, then you had a data breach. Whether anyone ever came through that door, whether anyone ever even rattled the doorknob, does not matter. It is a waste of your time and energy to try to figure that... Well, not a waste of your time and energy, because it's good to be able to tell people exactly what happened. But from a GDPR point of view, it is a breach. That would say that a vulnerability is a breach. And I didn't think a vulnerability was... Okay, if the vulnerability would allow an attacker to access personal data, because GDPR only cares about data, it doesn't right. care about hacking, it only cares about ta- data. Right. Right. So if an API allows data to be accessed that should be private, that is a data breach. Whether or not anyone ever called the API function doesn't matter. It was exposed. So the analogy mm. is if you left the house with the front door open, it doesn't matter if someone walked through the front door or not, you left the house with the front door open, or you left this the bank safe a, unlocked. There's going to be millions night. of these a year, then, right? Because there's vulnerabilities all the time. Yes, and there's but probably been a you flash don't, okay, vulnerability. Okay, so GDPR while we're says talking. it is a breach, right? So GDPR says it is a breach. So that bit is unquestionable. It is a breach. The question under GDPR then becomes: Is this a notifiable breach? Okay. Right. And then there's a whole other set of criteria that come into play. So the first thing that comes into play is what type of data is it. And if it's data that is um, that, that is considered sensitive, then it becomes absolutely compulsory to notify. 
And in other situations, it becomes encouraged to notify, but it's not a case of we will sue okay. the pants off you. Okay. But all I'm right. just saying that, you know, all of this argument I kept hearing about, you know, well, did someone or didn't someone? That's irrelevant. Doesn't matter from a GDPR point of view. What matters is that they left the door open. And then the question is, well, what was behind the door? And in this case, I would have to go read up in detail whether any of the fields I just read out earlier would force a disclosure. It's yeah. possible that because there was no medical information in there, the email address, I'm not sure about if that would count as enough to make it notifiable. Had there been bank details, it would have been an open and shut case. Had there been medical details, it would have been an open and shut case. Had it been using him some passwords, it would have been an open and shut case. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure with this information, name, email, occupation, gender and age. Probably actually not forced notify. Okay. If memory serves. All right. I'm going off memory here. Memory's dangerous. But anyway, the, the key point that struck me was everyone was fixated on whether or not anyone used the vulnerability. It doesn't matter. What matters is what the data was. And I, I think in this case, it wouldn't have been forced notification. But it would have been a breach, which they would have had to tell the data protection commissioner who would have then said, yeah, that's fine. You don't need to tell people. And actually, that would have been perfect cover. Because if they had told the data protection commissioner and the data protection commissioner said, yeah, that's fine. You don't need to notify people. Then they would have been completely covered because then they wouldn't have decided not to notify. Right, right. That's where you tell grandma and grandma says, no, don't tell your mother. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it's fine. Thank you. Thank you for being responsible. You're grand. Carry on. Which is a much easier thing to say than we decided to cover this up so we didn't look like Facebook. That's just (laughs) not a good look. Not a good look. Right. Now, the second story is one of those moments this week when my heart stopped. This, this crossed my inbox, um, and the headline was, Critical SSH Vulnerability, Act Now. I was like, no! I mean, as Uh-oh. a Linux sysadmin, that is auga, auga. And it sound, it, the first few sentences made it sound even worse. So the problem is in something called a libssh. And libssh sounds exactly like the canonical implementation of SSH. I mean, if I was going to name the library for SSH, I'd call it libssh. And so my immediate thought was, oh, no, this is everywhere. Okay. So I looked on a server for the name of all the installed packages I grepped for SSH on the list of all installed packages. And I saw libssh2 and my heart sank even further. It's like, oh, no, this is part of Red Hat Linux. Poop. This means it's in Ubuntu. This means it's in CentOS. This means it's everywhere. But then I read a little bit further into the fantastic reporting over on Naked Security, and I discovered that libssh2 and libssh are utterly unrelated libraries that have nothing to do with each other whatsoever. Somebody just got lazy naming? (laughs) Basically, I think the way it went is someone didn't like libssh and just basically went, yeah, well, we're the improved version. We're libssh. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's it would be related, but it's been redone. No, it's related in the sense that it aims to solve the same problem. Okay, but written but separately. But not in that it has, not in that it shares code, not in that it shares people. It's just someone basically went, I can do it better and I'm going to call mine too. Oh, okay. So initially I was panic stations, panic stations. It is in libssh. Now, when it comes to SSH, actually, the biggest player out there by a million and one miles is open. SSH, which I should have realized, but I was too busy panicking. Um, and OpenSSH is from the BSD people, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with libssh. And OpenSSH is what powers every Linux distribution I am aware of. There might be one somewhere powered by something else, but pretty much it's always OpenSSH. 
OpenSSH is what powers the uh, Unixes, and OpenSSH is what powers the SSH client, uh, our server and client on your Mac. So Linux, Unix, and Mac covered off. Oh, not, Windows, not vulnerable. But hey, as in, yes, on, as in safe. before you go one more step, I realized um, I didn't do my job. Bart, Uh-oh. what's SSH? SSH stands for Secure Shell. It is the encrypted replacement to something called Telnet. So it's a way of getting a command prompt on a remote machine. But SSH takes that a step further and allows you to basically put any network traffic between two computers can be encrypted using SSH. And the most common use is to get a command prompt or to send files. So SFTP uses SSH and SCP uses SSH. And then if you just say SSH, people assume you mean the secure version of a remote terminal. So while many of the people listening would not ever directly use this themselves, they should care deeply that if their every server they talked to on the internet was to be um, vulnerable to some terrible attack. Yes, because this actually what we forgot to say at the top of this was, so what was the vulnerability, Bart? Um, you could convince the server you had already authenticated and it would believe you. So the server says, stop, halt, who goes there? Give me your username and password. And you said, no, 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 I told you already. And you said I was fine. Oh, all right, then come in. (laughs) That's actually as bad as the vulnerability was. These are not the droids you're looking for. Right, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that is how catastrophic this was. It was a complete authentication bypass. So yes, Mm -hmm. every server you connect to that has SSH on it, if it was running this dangerous version of SSH, anyone could hack that server. So that would affect you. The other way it affects you is that a lot of things happen over SSH that are not SSH. A classic example being GitHub. So every time someone checks out some, every time someone checks out some code over over Git, if they're doing it securely, it's either over HTTPS or over SSH, and an awful lot of it is over SSH. And GitHub is one of the biggest Git repositories in the world. And GitHub used libssh, but they're thankfully patched. Oh, so oh, there the is a biggest patch to this. actual victim. There is a patch, yes. Okay. So the biggest actual genuinely vulnerable thing was probably GitHub, and it is already fixed. So anyway, okay. going through my list of people who are safe. So Linux users are fine. Unix users are fine, as in the BSDs. Mac users are fine. Uh, Windows doesn't have SSH, so you're sort of fine by default. But there's even better news. The most common free SSH server and client people use on Windows is called Putty. And Putty is also not affected. Oh, good. Yeah. I used to use Now, the other place you see a lot of SSH is in home routers. Or indeed, not home routers. Um, Fancy Francisco routers have SSH too. But home routers often have it too for remote administration. And thankfully, there's yet another SSH library that's used for those kind of things. It's called DropBear. And DropBear was kind of invented to be sleek and lean and not need many resources, which is why it's very popular on things like routers that don't have a lot of RAM and CPU at their disposal. So Hmm. the majority of routers would use DropBear, but in theory, some of them could be using libssh. And unfortunately, the one place where all of this good news falls to pieces is in the Internet of Things, because you have no idea what's in there. Uh, hang on and one second. In your show notes, you said something that I think is bears uh, reading oh. out loud. Was you said uh, do keep an eye on your router and make sure if the, keep an eye out for uh, updates just in case. Yeah. So basically, the way I put it in the show notes is if in doubt, update your computers, VMs, routers, and SSH apps because this you know if you have a, a fancy pants SSH client, it has to use some sort of SSH library under the hood. It might be libssh. So. You know, 
check for updates, but don't be surprised or panicked if there are no updates because on all of my Linux servers, there were no updates because they weren't affected. On my Mac, there was no update because it's not affected. But, you know, by all means, stay patched and stay secure. That's just good advice always. Okay. Now, Uh, the IoT IoT devices, they're going to be fine. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh. Uh, So basically, the only thing you can do is go to somewhere like Shields Up and point it at your home network, which is what it does by default, because you can't use Shields Up to do the denial of services attack. It will only scan the IP that is talking to it, which is a security feature. So basically, you go to Shields Up and you do a full scan. And if nothing answers back, well, then even if it is vulnerable, it's only vulnerable within your house. What you don't want to see is something answering back facing the world internet. And, you know, so if you're the kind of person who runs your own VPN server, then you're going to know that it's there and that should then be the only thing you find which yields up. But unless you've proactively published something, you shouldn't find any open listening stuff when you do a shields up scan. And if you do, then you have some homework to do to figure out what's going on. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Shields Up by at grc.com, but it's got a bunch of other glop after that because Steve Gibson is that kind of guy. It's not like shieldsup.com or grc.com yeah, slash shields up. It's slash su dash firewall dash. <laughs> yeah, it basically, if you'd like to know what it feels like to live in the 80s, go to grc.com. That's a <laughs> wonderful impression of it. Yeah. So anyway, uh the last thing I just have in the show notes is some links. The The single best article in this whole thing is from Naked Security. They did a really nice write-up on it, which they then followed up today with a really nice video of it, where they have their security expert on camera, and then the guy holding the camera asks him questions that he answers. Um, I, to be honest, uh, I find it easier to read the write-up, but if, you're, you know, if you just want to put something on in the background while you do something else, then the video is actually good for that. There's no point in watching the video. It's just a guy in front of some potted plants. But the content, you know, the audio is good. So finally, we do, we meet the normal content of Security Bits. Wow. It's been a busy two weeks. Patch Tuesday has been and gone. 49 patches from Microsoft, 12 critical ones in Windows. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Uh, Microsoft had a bit of a whoopsie with their Autumn 2018 feature update. So a feature update is not the same as their security updates. Their security updates were fine. It's their Autumn Creator update, their feature update, that was not fine. In a small minority of cases, it deleted users' data, specifically their desktop and documents folders. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, I, and it's actually slightly understandable. So there's a feature in Windows where you can tell it, don't use C drive slash whatever as my documents folder, use this other folder instead. And when that feature was enabled, Microsoft or the Windows 10 assumed that meant that the one on the C drive wasn't needed and it deleted it. <laughs> but there are people who configure and uh, uh, to use a different folder for the documents folder and they still want the stuff in the real documents folder on the C drive. And those people were in, in for a world of pain because it was just blown away. So they have you know, a they, They're they helping have a patch them get it back somehow. I don't understand that, but... Uh, well, if you if you get to these things quickly, you can simply undelete because nothing really deletes anything these days. All you do is you tell the operating system to ignore those files. It's basically pretend that's empty space. 
unless you do a secure delete, that's all you're really doing, which is why we've had undelete features since way back in the days of Norton. The thing is, if you wait for a long time, well, the quicker you undelete stuff, the the better you're going to get away with it because nothing's going to have been written on those now free sectors because they're marked as free. Oh, okay. So until you actually write on them, they're not... It, when you delete a file, it's not written over with zeros and as you do a secure delete, it's just marked as being available. Right, 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 right. And so if you get there quickly enough, you can change your mind and basically undo, undo <laughs> and get them back. Quickly. But anyway, Microsoft have issued a patch. That patch is now as in their insiders program, which is what they're called their public beta. Um, and assuming it passes muster, I'm imagining well, we'll and, see it next. Patch and they next pulled time. that update. They Yeah, sorry, they pulled the live update. Right. And then they patched within a day or two and the patch is now in their insider program. Right. And then, just as before we recorded, Microsoft released an out-of-band patch for the Yammer desktop app, which could allow a remote attacker to take over your computer. Which sort of left me going, well, a remote attacker taking over your computer on an out-of-band patch, that sounds important. I guess that goes in the show notes. And then I went, and is anyone actually using Yammer? That was going to be my first question. My second question is, did they tell the GDPR? people? Did they tell the EU Commission? Well, no, because this is not a data breach. This is a bug in a piece of software. That's a vulnerability. You said a vulnerability. No, I said no. I explicitly said it's about data, not about vulnerabilities. It's not about hacks. It's about data. Yeah, but if a vulnerability for the desktop app allows people to get into your data, but no, it it allows people to hack your computer. Right, which would allow them access to your personal data. No, the GDPR doesn't go that far. You have to be the holder of data. You have to be a data controller, and then you have to have. It's then your responsibility okay. to secure that data, and then you have to make a boo boo in securing that data that you are the data controller of, on behalf of the so data. So Microsoft subjects. is not the controller of the data on my computer when I use Microsoft software that has a vulnerability. Exactly, I am. Okay, how oh, interesting. Yes, you are exactly. So if you were a corporation and you had put your customers' data into Yammer, and Microsoft had made a boo boo, and Yammer had messed up then you as the data controller would have a responsibility to tell your clients if they had actually been affected by this. I don't see how that would happen with Yammer. But if you were using MySQL and there was a bug in MySQL that you didn't patch, then you as the data controller would be responsible, not MySQL. Got you. Okay. I'm glad we argued one more time. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the Yammer makes me laugh. Speaking of private networks, that one is so private it has nobody on it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, Apple also pushed out some updates. Um, iCloud 7.7 for Windows. That one sort of caught my eye. We don't see that one updated very often, but they <laughs> updated it. And also iOS 12.0.1, watchOS 5.0.1, and tvOS 12.0.1. And, and then sort of security updates. I thought they were just regular old updates, but there's always some security stuff thrown in. Well, there's not always, but there is in this case. Oh, okay. All right. So if I mention them, then there is. Okay. That's what it comes down to. Um, also, on a related note, some some people in Reddit discovered that if you try to put up a fake keyboard iOS 12, on a web page, iOS 12 will detect that it's a fake keyboard, or at least it has some detection that detects many fake keyboards and stops them. Which oh, is a wow. really interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting feature that Apple never crowed about. It's just in there. Someone stumbled on it while experimenting. Because oh, yeah. somebody would a make white a or fake gray keyboard, hacker. wouldn't they? Yeah, basically someone went, oh, I wonder if I could use this to hack. Oh, no, I can't. Which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
And then finally, WhatsApp have patched both their Android and iOS apps to fix a critical vulnerability. So if you're a WhatsApp user, allow your apps to update on your relevant mobile platform. Okay. Hey, uh, before we get to notable news, um, Mm -hmm. I have a real life story about, uh, you know, the uh, scammers that call you up and tell you that you've got Windows uh, or a problem with your Microsoft on your computer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, a friend of mine fell for it. Oh, no. And uh, yeah, he had a Mac. Mm-hmm. And they, they charged him $100, and he paid that. And then they told me he owed him another $400, and he paid that. And then oh they God. he didn't tell me until this week, and he's been uh, – it happened in February. And uh, eventually he, he got angry with them. They kept calling him and calling him and calling him, and he'd argue with them and everything, and he told me he wanted his money back. And they told him, uh, okay, 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 we'll give you your four, $500 back. We'll send, we'll you know give us your, your routing number. We'll send you the money. And so it, he gets the money, and he looks, and it's $2,000 instead of 500 What? And, and then they contact him, and they go, oh, we made a mistake. We didn't mean to give you $2,000. We've put that in suspense. And if you give us the the fifteen hundred dollars, then we'll give you the five hundred. He didn't. This okay, is good he because I know how that story would have ended. They would have then yeah. gotten yeah. And when he wouldn't do it, they locked him out of his Mac. So they actually means, got him to install malware. Oh, they've been in yeah, they've been in his Mac since February. And he didn't tell me. And he now has his computer over at some computer shop who's going to quote unquote clean it up. And I keep trying to tell him like no, you need to erase it. It doesn't matter what's on there. You have to erase all of it. And by the way, have you changed all of your passwords? And he said, well, I've done some of them. Oh, no. So I, this was on a Friday, and, and he kept beating himself up about it. And I had already had plans to teach him how to use one password on Monday, he and his wife. And huh. I, said, I, said, uh, I said, look, sweetie, you can, you can berate yourself through the, this weekend. Okay, it's all your fault. You're terrible. You're ridiculous. You should never have done this. And on Monday, you're going to be over that because we're just going to go forward and we're going to get you on one password. And he actually came up with a good idea, albeit fairly late. But he said, how about if I change all my passwords tomorrow or today to the same thing? And then on Monday, we'll change them all to different things. You know, make one. Yeah, it really isn't. It isn't a bad idea at all. So uh, he is hard at work trying to populate one password as we speak. Well, good. I, my heart broke. Well well. You're, you're right. So There's sick. no point in beating yourself up. You know, nope. move, move forward. But that's a very cautionary tale because, ouch, that's expensive. Yeah. Well, and who knows what they got into, right? I, I, to his knowledge, yeah. they didn't get into any of his money or anything. So, well, apart from the five thousand dollars. Oh no, it was five hundred. Five. Uh, pfft, still. Still. <laughs> still. still. Do you have five hundred yeah. bucks to throw away? Nope. Uh, yeah, I, I, no. That's it's half an iPhone ten. Exactly. Anyway, so you know, keep keep alert to your relatives that if uh, this is a real thing, you know, your relatives yeah. and your friends that may not think that this can't be true. Actually, and with the Christmas season coming up, may I make a suggestion? Um something which parents of adult children may want to consider as a gift, buy a family one password account. You can, ah. They've updated the account. So it used to be that you got five licenses, but they've actually changed it. So you can actually buy whatever number of licenses you need. Oh. And you can you can set up multiple shared vaults with different people. So you if you have two married kids, you can set up a vault for yourself and your significant other. 
So everyone gets a private vault, is how it works with one mm-hmm. password family. And then you can set up shared vaults. So you can set up a vault for absolutely everyone in the extended family, which would probably not have very much in it. But it could be useful for, you know, if the worst happens, here's some things you need. Right. Uh, but then you can also set a separate vault for each couple. Hmm. Right? So Oh, for them to have a share? Exactly. So, you know, for Kyle and Mrs. Kyle and Lindsay and Mr. Lindsay. <laughs> right? And then yeah. for Alison and Steve... Right. So right. basically, you end up with a globally shared vault, a shared vault within each couple, and then everyone has a private vault. And yeah. if you gift that as a monthly subscription, that's actually real value. And then because it's a subscription, you can download as many copies of the app on as many OSs as you want because you're paying for the, you know, as a service. And so everyone just becomes secure. Uh, you know, and you get to have some fun at Christmas teaching everyone how to use it. And my experience has been that people fall in love with one password. Yeah, there's there is a hump to get over. <laughs> yeah, there is a hump and, to get over. It's usually the whole idea of even starting, and then and then doing, and then fixing them, and then complete and utter joy on the other side. Yes, and the joy comes surprisingly quickly because I was I had steeled myself for a fairly long battle, and it turns out that I think it was the day after I had you know got my dad started. He said in a phone call, "Do you know this is really nice." Oh, good. Phew. (laughs) Now, did you enter all the passwords for him? Did you do the setup work? Well, no, because uh, we don't live in the same town. uh, So you did it like over the phone? You explained it to him? We did it over the phone. Wow. Because there was was an incident. It didn't involve $500, but there was an incident. And I basically said, look, the only way to be safe here is to reset it all. And he went, okay. Wow. That's and that's pretty good because it took hours to get them to where they had like three passwords set up by the time I was done. A uh, part of the problem was uh, uh, the the wife came with a phone that was on iOS eleven and one password seven, I guess it is, doesn't run on mm-hmm. iOS eleven. Oh. So we had to wait for her phone to update, and she's like, "Okay, no problem." But I brought an iPad too, and the iPad was on ten dot three dot three and couldn't be upgraded oh, from there. So that that slowed us down a little bit. And the yeah. the third device was a computer uh, PC, which was entertaining. Running what Windows Vista? Or? No, no, no. It was running Windows ten, I think. But it was That's you know right. it was fine. One, one password on Windows ten is tolerable, but you know something? The one password for Mac, one password seven for Mac, is one of the sweetest applications I've ever used. Oh, and I'm beautiful. a picky fecker. Yeah, it, one of the big things that I really like about uh, the newest version is that you can drag. Uh, things from one vault to another. You just drag them instead of the whole yeah. right-click, 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 down, shadow, copy, move nonsense. No, and and that worse. didn't work on Windows. It, it, was was like, it was like Microsoft. They start to shut down. It was, you had to click, you had to right-click, go down to share, and then move was under share. Right, right. Which was really, really And you had to right-click in an obscure spot, and oh, it's just hard. Oh, now it's just like, let me just drag it into the new one. But I was really sad that that wasn't in the Windows version. Or at least I'm I couldn't figure out how to get it. I'm hoping they get a 7 update soon. I'm hoping all the goodies come over to Windows soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. Anyway, security news. Um, Notable so news. Th- th- this first story arguably could be a security medium. I'm not quite sure where it should go, but anyway... Uh, there is a manufacturer in China who is an OEM manufacturer for lots of IoT devices. Uh, it's spelled X-I-O-N-G-M-A-I-A. So I'm sort of saying Xiaomi. Xiaomi. 
Show me. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will trust you because I, I don't have I any understanding it. of the phonemes. Um, they have a previous. Many, many, many of their devices were what powered the Mirai botnet, which was the biggest botnet ever in history and destroyed big chunks of the internet. Unfortunately, they're at it again and they don't appear to have learned anything. Uh, security researchers have found that a very broad range of webcams of internet-connected IoT-style cameras are built with whatever you just said, chips. They all have default admin usernames and passwords, and they're basically all over the internet, ripe to be turned into another botnet. So hmm. basically, they haven't learned anything. And because they're an OEM manufacturer, there's no point in looking for their name on the box. Instead, I'm afraid if you have an internet-connected camera that is visible from the internet, so if you scan yourself with shields up and your camera shows up, you have this problem, you're then going to have to go to the link in the show notes where the security researchers uh, have a list of all the different brand names that are affected. Yikes. Yeah. Um, Security researchers then also detailed what is both a scary and deviously clever attack against WhatsApp. Hmm. Uh, so the the, ba- the way this boils down is if you have WhatsApp and you enable two-factor authentication and you leave the password on your voicemail at its default value, which is probably five zeros or something really stupid because most carriers do that kind of dumb thing, then people can hack your WhatsApp. And you might be saying to yourself, hang on a second, what on earth has WhatsApp got to do with my voicemail? Well, the answer is, how does WhatsApp's 2FA work? So if I, let's say I wanted to attack you, and I, I know that it's you I'm after, and that you live in California. I would wait until your bedtime, and I would then attempt to log into your account with some usernames and passwords I've stolen from some password dump. And I'm sort of assuming you're reusing passwords. And I would be stopped from reusing your password by two-factor auth, mm-hmm. which would send an SMS to your phone. Right. You, however, are asleep. So either you don't hear your phone or more likely still you're using Apple's Do Not Disturb feature to get a good night's sleep and so therefore you don't even hear your SMS message. After a certain amount of time has passed, which is, you know, minutes, not hours, WhatsApp will say, would you like me to phone rather than SMSing because you don't seem to have gotten your code? Oh. At this point, you are still asleep. So it is going to your voicemail. If you have a default password on your voicemail, I can get your two-factor auth code. And I can take over your account. So you also very need clever. to know my phone. No, you don't need my phone number because it's not really my phone. Well, I do I do need your phone number, but your WhatsApp account is tied to your phone number. That oh, is your identity right. on WhatsApp. Right? So that's what I'm trying to break into. I would need to your I would need to know your password. So this is a this gets an end around two-factor auth. So let's say you're one of the people who showed up in a password breach of the millions of password breaches and you reused a password on WhatsApp and you think it's okay to reuse passwords because they have two-factor auth. That would be true if your voicemail didn't have the default password. Okay. So if anyone ever says... So basically, one of the first things I do when I change cell carriers is make sure my voicemail is secured. And people have always laughed at me, but it's like, no, don't leave these things at their default. Important stuff goes to your phone. Your phone is used to prove you are who you say you are. And if they don't get you, they get your voicemail. And now, now I, now I don't have to say to people, now, you know, believe me, now I can just link people to this story. So this one is bookmarked in my pocket app and I have a, I have a tag called for reference. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is basically my Neener Neener folder. <laughs> and uh, this th- this is in there. So the next time someone tries to have a go at me for this piece of advice, I go, actually, no. Bing. <laughs> so there's your takeaway. Neener Neener section. I like it. Well, you know, my I told you so section, I guess. Um right. In other news, a Polish researcher has published details of critical vulnerabilities in eight D-Link router models. And this poor chap really did his best to do responsible disclosure, but unfortunately he didn't get anywhere with D-Link. So he I'm sent shocked, D-Link. Bart. They've been so responsive to me. Yeah. Actually, this is, yeah, this is somewhat familiar. So he, told, he sent them details of this bug in eight of their routers, and their only reply to him has been, well, six of them are end of life. Now, that means two of them aren't end of life, but they also don't appear to have been patched. And the other six, the implication is, well, we're just leaving those. So bottom line, there are eight model numbers. I'm not going to read them out. They're in the show notes. If you have one of those routers, as best as I can tell, you're going shopping. Because I don't see what else you can do. So, sorry. That, the last time I checked to see whether they'd fixed fixed the crack vulnerability in the uh, in their one hundred and fifty dollar webcam, it was still no. Yeah, they marked it as oh yeah, we know this one's broken, and then mm-hmm. moved on. But all of them were. I mean, it was they they'd done like ten out of maybe fifty. Yeah, run depressing. away, run away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now we move to the more good news side of the show notes. So uh, Facebook are continuing to harden their service against manipulation of democratic processes. F- initially, their stuff was US only, which makes sense. You guys may have a wee bit of an election. Um, but they're now rolling that out to other countries too. So this week we got details of how they are changing political ads in the UK. So basically you have to prove who you say you are and so on and so forth to run a political ad. And very sensible, so good. Uh, Apple then also rolled out some privacy updates. Now, to those of us in Europe, this isn't news. We got this a few months ago for GDPR, but at the time, Apple had promised that everyone else would get this portal too. Uh, Well, they have now followed through on at least part of that promise by rolling the portal out to the United States, which is a pretty darn big rollout, really, when you think about it. Uh, So you guys now have this really handy portal where you can go in and easily get all the information Apple holds on you. And I would suggest doing it just for the crack, to be honest. Now, if you're me, the file will be big because, you know, I've been an Apple user for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, So they actually have quite a bit on me because I gave it to them. And in fact, I pay them every month to keep 50 gigs of it, I believe. Uh, whatever size my iCloud is. So anyway, it's not surprising my file was big, but it's it's interesting to see what they have. And yeah, I, you know, it's funny. When I heard this, I was like, this sounds really familiar, but I knew it, we didn't have it before, and mm-hmm. I had forgotten completely, but you got it in GDPR. Yeah, so this is one of the rare occasions where I get something from Apple before you do. Very rare. <laughs> That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Apple have also updated their privacy website to explain some more about what Mojave and iOS 12 are doing from a privacy point of view. So that's their privacy, their normal privacy website on their webpage. Uh, Google then have also hardened their G Suite a little bit. Um, so they've had a feature for a while where you could opt in to a service where they would tell you if they think a state-level actor is attacking you. They have now decided that and rather than making it opt-in, they're going to make it opt-out. So there is still a toggle, but the toggle now defaults to on. As opposed to defaulting to off. Oh, okay. 
That's good. And this is for G Suite. So this is not free people. This is for people who pay Google to deliver them a service. So it's basically for their corporate accounts. Right. Uh, right. And then finally, it is good. No, it is good. Absolutely. Um, Google have announced that Android Pie will support a new feature to increase the security of your Android cloud backups. So like Apple, like you can back your iPhone up to iCloud, there's a feature in modern versions of Android where you can back your Android device up to Google's cloud. Uh, but until now, Google have been able to decrypt that backup because the encryption keys haven't been such that that wasn't the case. But Google have re-architected the system so that now the backups are protected by the pin on your phone. So that means that Google can't read your backups, which is a nice improvement in security because if Google can't read it, then they can't, well, they, no matter can't how give it up whoopsie in a, they in get, a subpoena they can't, or anything. they can't give it out or have it hacked from them. So that's better than Apple because Apple has the encryption keys for iCloud, right? Uh, no, they don't. I, I need to reread Apple's white paper, but Apple do an awful, awful lot to protect your backups. But I'm So I'm not sure it is better. Sure. Yeah, we should double check that because uh, I am under the impression that they do. Well, see, now they no, but they they re, they rolled they upgraded their backups a bunch because that's why your health data is now backed up to iCloud. They didn't back it up before because they couldn't guarantee its safety, but now they do back it up because they can. Hmm. Okay. I I would love to be wrong about that. My understanding was that they had the encryption keys. That was true, but I don't. I I believe. At least for big chunks of your backup, that isn't true. Okay. So uh, everybody assume Bart's right because he usually is. <laughs> and if, I, we, I know if it turns out I'm right, we'll, if it uh, turns out I'm right, then uh, we'll let you know. But that's so basically, I know they can't get your keychain. I know they can't get your health data. And the question is how much of the backup is under the stronger protection and how much of it is under the more traditional protection? And the answer is, I don't know exactly what ratio it is, but the the crown jewels are fully protected in Apple's backups. Okay. Which is, I mean, I like the fact that Apple put effort into these kind of things. Sure. People were cranky, you know, health data is not in my backup. It's like, yeah, well, they didn't put it in their backup until they could protect it. And now it is because they can. And that, you know, good. Thank you, Apple. Uh, some PSA's tips and advice. Um, Naked Security have an article, How to Buy and Set Up a Safe and Secure Baby Monitor. This is becoming ever more of a problem because we throw cool tech at the problem but end up accidentally broadcasting our baby to the planet. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not the intention. So definitely a good read for new parents. Um, a new trick is showing up on these extortion-type plots that we like we were just talking about, these various scams. So generally speaking, these things work by tricking you into believing that the attackers have actually hacked you. So the one that we talked about a few few weeks ago is where they use a username and password of yours that is in a data breach. So there are so many breached passwords out there, it's very easy to get a collection of usernames and passwords and email addresses. And so they email you with a password that is genuinely your password and tell you they have hacked your computer. Well, it's half true. That is genuinely your password. No, they haven't hacked your computer. It's from a data breach. And therefore, you believe that they have what they say they have. They extort you for money. Oh, dear. Not good. Well, they're now exploiting a new trick. Right? The protocol for sending email, SMTB, the simple mail transfer protocol, is very simple indeed. It has genuinely all of the security of a postcard. Not a letter in an envelope, a postcard. 
And you can write any return address on the back of a postcard you feel like. Right. You can have, you can send an email with any from address you want. There is no validation of from addresses. So the new trick is to send you an email with you as the from address as quote unquote proof that they have hacked into your email and that they found in there all sorts of things that they can use to extort you. It's a hoax, folks. It's a hoax. Don't be extorted. They're probably lying. And even if they're not lying, still don't give them money. (laughs) Right. Still don't be extorted, even if they're not lying. But they're almost certainly lying. Uh, The people over at Elcomsoft have written a blog post, everything you wanted to know about activation lock and iCloud lock. And given Elcomsoft are a major grey hat slash security researching company with a strong Apple focus. These are the people you want telling you how well these things work because they they literally make their money trying to break them. So they're very interesting people to tell you about these things. It's like having a uh, a lock picker explain locks to you. So that's, uh, they're, in, they're an interesting source for this. Um, TechCrunch are also warning that there are apps in the Mac App Store that, uh, I mean, it's not hidden. It's just you may forget to read, but sometimes when you buy an in-app purchase... that's a subscription it has like a free month or a free x amount of time and then a really really high monthly charge some of them have three days free trial followed by like 50 quid a month so be careful what you opt into on these subscriptions yeah um now on uh again i think it was on mac break weekly they talked about a an interesting solution as soon as you get one of those apps you can go into your itunes preferences or whatever app store preferences and you can cancel it and you still yeah. get the free trial. So if you're not sure, then cancel it right away. Yeah, and that, that that I love the fact that Apple implemented their subscriptions that way. Because it means that they're not trying to trick you. you know, they're not out to get you. You can cancel at any time and whatever you've paid for, you get to keep until it runs out. It's I like Apple did it that way. Uh, an interesting one from Intego, how to spot fake product reviews and also why you might care. Uh, a reminder from the Mac Observer that the do not track setting in browsers is completely meaningless because that just fell through. And uh, one I put a star next to, if you run your own website, and if that website uses HTTPS, then you need to just double check that the provider of that certificate is not Symantec. Because about a year ago, Symantec had a giant big security boo-boo so giant and big that they have actually left the uh, HTTPS certificate market completely. And as of next month, neither Firefox nor Chrome will believe a semantic cert regardless of its expiry date. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So this has been announced. This has been coming. This is now coming to pass. So if you run your own website and it has HTTPS, just make sure you didn't buy it from semantic. You probably didn't, but just make sure. And now we've had a whole bunch of notable breaches. Um, it continues to be a train wreck in the United States of America. I should have a US flag next to it, actually. Um, you guys have these credit tracking companies, and they're not very good at security. Uh, it's Experian's turn to make a boo-boo of the pins that are used to control the freezing and unfreezing of your credit history. Uh, so Experian's pins were found to be vulnerable which is a problem, I guess, if you're trying to stop people abusing your credit and experience. <laughs> Not really sure what more to say about that. The irony on that one's just awesome. Yeah. 
And then just to cheer you all up, uh, I'm afraid this isn't a good news story at all. Um, 35 million US voter records are for sale on the dark web. <sighs> Yay. And then perhaps a dose of schadenfreude. One shouldn't laugh because it's not funny. But I'll be honest, I did slightly titter. I shouldn't. I feel very naughty for having done so, but I did titter. There is a dating app called Donald Daters, which is for pro-Trump singles to get in it, to hook up. And since the very minute it launched, it has been a wreck in terms of security. And basically all the data has been exposed from day one. Oh, no. So I still don't want that to happen to anybody. Exactly. That's why I'm, I'm mad at myself <laughs> for having a little titter. Um, it's, it's, it's bold of me and I, I should not do it. Um, I have three stars then in the news section for suggested reading Um, privacy conscious search engine DuckDuckGo has hit 30 million daily searches wow have you ever used it yeah I use it all the time I have it set up on my iOS devices the default search Um, so I love DuckDuckGo because I have said for years that it is a lie that you have to invade people's privacy to sell them advertisements because actually you can sell ads based on either the website you are running. If you run an astronomy website, well, that tells you who your advertiser should be or on what people are searching for. If I'm searching for sneakers, I want sneakers. And DuckDuckGo are an ad paid for, for for-profit company that is making a profit but they sell their ads based on what you search for, not on who you are. So not on they don't track you. They oh, just okay. sell ads against the search. And I have been saying forever that whenever Google tell you, oh, no, no, it's free. Therefore, we must spy on you. No, <laughs> that's not correct. It's it really should be. I'm looking lucrative. for lawnmowers. You start showing me lawnmowers. Right? Exactly. So basically, advertisers buy ads based on what people search for. So you, as a person who wants to advertise, decide what searches you want to show up on, and then you pay DuckDuckGo to go on those searches. Simple. The thing is, you can charge more if you spy on people. It's not that you must spy on people, it's that it's financially lucrative. It's more financially lucrative to spy on people. But, but, but it's that not is a because that's more valuable data. Not, it is because it's, it's not more just coincidental. Because it's a targeted ad that knows I'm a woman over 60 living in California who drives Acura vehicles. That's much more valuable because you know a lot about me to know what to target me with. Exactly. So basically, when Google say, no, 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 the choice is your privacy or we can't make a profit, that's that's not fully true. That's ignoring the fact that there is another business model that's just less lucrative, but it does respect your privacy. And DuckDuckGo are proving that. And I like them for it. And I reward them for it by using them. Uh, turns yeah so the, the, I don't even know it's not really a security story but Facebook have decided that they are the perfect company to install a device with a camera into all of our homes and they think people will buy it um, I am skeptical that this is wait going did to you just say the first success. no they're not the first Amazon was no I, no I, no I didn't say f- oh I'm sorry I misunderstood no I I don't think I said first I certainly, my brain certainly didn't I don't know what my mouth said my my mouth doesn't always agree with my brain <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sure um, you're right. But yeah, so of all the companies on planet Earth, I would feel like trusting. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook are not on the list anywhere. Anyway, initially they had said, oh, no, no, we're not going to track you for ads. And they then immediately had to issue a correction. Like, no, no, no. Well, yeah, the data will feed back into your profile, but we won't show you any ads on the device. <laughs> Is that okay? 
Yeah, I heard uh, Tom talk about this, and he said it was a classic case of of two different groups not knowing what each other did. And the people who made this this portal in home video device, mm-hmm. uh, they are not targeting you with ads, but apparently it uses the uh, the messenger app as the as the protocol, and they do track you on that, and they do get ad ad data from that, which I didn't know. I mean, I suppose oh, I yeah. should have realized that, but. If you Never type it into a messenger. into a if you type it into a Facebook colored blue box, it is being tracked. I mean, yeah, that's what they do. Hey, this Slack's looking pretty good. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, business model. It, like, how many years have I been telling you to follow the money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, people have been jumping into Slack. I had to turn off notifications because they've been coming in like crazy while we've been talking. Patreon.com oh, slash Slack. Excellent. Of course, you put a redirect up. I love that you do that. Um, and then the last one with the star next to it is just to let you know that there is yet another iOS 12 lock screen bypass. Um, it's not set your hair on fire time because it only exposes your photos. Obviously, it shouldn't expose anything. It's, you know, it needs fixing. But as these things go, this isn't catastrophic. It's just bad. And I continue to not allow anything through my lock screen and I continue not to be affected by these lock screen bypasses. But to each their own. What you're choosing to do is to trade off convenience for security. And I don't think it's wrong to pick one over the other. I just would suggest people make a conscious choice as opposed if to just Apple, accepting the defaults. If Apple is the controller of my photos because I have my photos in iCloud Photo Library, does that make this a GDPR breach? No, because no, because they're not being leaked from Apple. They're... If Apple servers were breached, it would be clear cut. <laughs> uh, you'd need to pay a lawyer to answer the other question. You'd then need to go to court because I don't think anyone has the answer to that one yet. Uh, okay. Do you remember when I said with GDPR that we'd find out all the details when the lawyers got at it? Yeah, right, right. That Yeah, that's not clear cut. Okay. That way. My, my GDPR training does not prepare me to answer that question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There is lots more stuff here in suggested reading. There's some fun stuff in opinion and analysis, and there's even some real propeller beanie stuff in the propeller beanie section. Um, Would you like some quantum physics? Because it's in there. Quantum cryptography makes an appearance in propeller beanie territory. Water propeller. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And then a listener on the Silicastaway, Linda, sent us in our palate cleanser, which is a story I think we've probably mentioned, but I think it's worth mentioning over and over again. Um, To get really good encryption, what you need is truly random input to your algorithm. Randomness is the input to good encryption. And it's actually really hard to get a deterministic device like a computer to be random. I mean, humans are bad at it, but computers are actually really bad at it. But we found clever ways of getting computers to read randomness from the universe. So one of the ways you get randomness from your computer is actually there is a diode intentionally inserted backwards. So it's in reverse mode, which means that when you try to force a current through it, you get random noise because it's trying not to pass the current, okay. so you basically get quantum noise. So when you ask your computer to randomly generate a password, it's actually running it through a reverse polarized diode, or, or sorry, a reverse polarity diode. Um, but if you are running a major server farm, you need a lot of randomness. And you need to pull it from the universe, from something that is random. 
And one of the funnest things that are genuinely random are lava lamps. They are completely unpredictable, over-dependence on initial conditions. They are chaotic, i.e. they are random. So one way to get really high-quality entropy, as in randomness, is to install a giant wall of lava lamps and point a camera at them and basically convert all of the, you know, the lava lamps are two colours, so one colour becomes ones and one colour becomes zeros. You put cameras on them, you put them into a grid, you now have a a two-dimensional grid of ones and zeros that is pure random. Hey, presto, that is exactly what um, Cloudflare do to get their randomness for their amazing service. That is the most delightful thing. I, and I think my favorite part in there was you can actually go visit the lava lamps and you would think that would be a bad thing, but you're adding even more noise to it. Yeah, because they're in the reception, I believe. Walking I, believe like, I believe they're behind the reception desk. <laughs> and why not? If I had lots and lots of lava lamps, I'd want them on show. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> what fun is a lava lamp you can't see? So, yeah, there you go. So, thank you, Linda. I, you know, I, I think it is a very cool way to get your... And I, I think you said to me, Alison, in an email that you always liked this company anyway, but now you love them even more. Because yeah. there are people. Oh, yeah. Who would not, who would not love this? This is great stuff. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, my voice is beginning to go, which tells me that I must have told you far too much security news. I noticed this. No, not too much. Just the right amount. I... Uh, I really got a lot out of this one. I, I always do, and I always say that, but uh, yeah, this was really, really interesting. Lots of good stuff, and I enjoyed I'd torturing you. I'd just like to you. say, I, I just I realized, very silly of me, I've forgotten I had it here. I actually have a cup of Captain Picard juice next to me that I should have been drinking to keep my throat going, so I have a cup of tea, Earl Grey, mildly warm. <laughs> it was hot, now it's mildly warm. Well, that's too bad. Well, we'll give you a chance to sip that when we're done here. Okie dokie. Well, until next time, the key takeaway, as always, stay patched and stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me, as always, at allison at podfeed.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a Patreon? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to try the new cool Slack where all the cool kids are? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Want to join the live show and chat with all your little friends? Podfeet.com slash chat. Want to find those Amazon affiliate links? Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join the fun of the live show, which is normally on Sunday nights, but it will not be on Sunday next week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live next Monday, the 29th of October at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nusilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.